Hopefully, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. As we said last Sunday, uh, the book of Genesis is a, a book of foundations. It lays the groundwork for our faith. In the book of Genesis, we're going to be uh, introduced to the existence of God, but also who He is, what He's like, His character, uh, the person of God. We, it begins to be fleshed out very quickly as in the, the triune Godhead. Uh, we learn of His sovereignty, and this morning we will be looking at how sin and evil actually entered into the creation uh, but it also talks about other things like, like marriage. Uh, a couple of times just right off the bat, uh, we're told that Adam and Eve are married. Uh, the first time is in chapter 2, verse 25. It says, both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. So there's, there's marriage there. And chapter 3, uh, verse 8, again, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves. And so a couple of times. Now, I don't recall a marriage ceremony, a wedding. I think the closest we're going to get to it is verse 23. That's the, the wedding vows. We're all so familiar with these elaborate wedding vows that uh, people give now. But... Um, this is about as close as we get in chapter 2, would be maybe verse 23. But, uh, but marriage is established uh, with Adam and Eve right from the very beginning. Now, chapter 3 will prove to be no less monumental than the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Genesis 3 is a whopper. And so let's go ahead and read it first, and then we'll begin to, to look at it more closely in, in pieces. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it, you must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God, Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Well, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I had commanded you not to eat from? Then the man replied, The woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. 
So the Lord God asked the woman, he says, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will dominate you. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. I will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. From you were dust, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove men out east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed cherubim with a flaming, whirling sword to guard the way to the tree of life. As I said, the Bible uh, in the book of Genesis is a book of foundations, and so we are beginning we are beginning to be introduced to things from the very for the very first time. Here we have a, a serpent. Who is this serpent? You'll notice that it does not tell us that it's Satan. We will find out find that out elsewhere. It's confirmed in other places. Uh, in John eight forty four. Uh, Jesus was talking to them and he said that, uh, that Satan is a liar and the father of lies and that he was a murderer from the beginning. So Jesus is pointing back to this very beginning time, uh, this character of the devil. It's the same character that he has today uh, when he is confined in a bottomless pit in Revelation 20 for the entire period of time there and released he comes back out swinging he hasn't changed a lick and so this is the character of this person this angel and uh, in, in Revelations chapter 12 verse 9 and then again in chapter 20 verse 2 he is referred to as the the devil is referred to as the serpent of old and so this is the devil this is Satan but this is also uh, the serpent is also an animal it's one of the wild animals there in chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And so uh, uh, we can see that he is created from that very first verse that the serpent is someone who is created. We're told that it's also an, an animal. And because of the curse that's pronounced on him, where he's going to be crawling on his belly from that point forward, we can assume that this was a created creature that was upright in some fashion and highly intelligent. 
Now, the things that happened when Adam and Eve sinned, the, 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 cata the catastrophic change that occurred, um, it does not take long for us to look around the world today and see the problems that we have and the problems we have with ourselves uh, to see the, the devastation of sin. But when we sin, I do not think that we can truly appreciate or comprehend the severity and the magnitude of what we have done. We see a, a, a serpent coming up to Eve and talking to her, and Eve does not seem surprised by that. We do not know what sin did to communication. We don't know. We don't know if animals could talk. Uh, we don't know. We know that in Numbers chapter 22 that Balaam's donkey talked to him. A very, a very uh, intelligent conversation that was based upon history between them two. This donkey is talking to him about how he has been faithful to him all of his life. Uh, very interesting. This donkey was uh, his, his, uh, his memory, his intelligence, he was articulating. Uh, very interesting. Uh, I know that when um, all I have to do is say the word bath, and our dog Teddy goes under the bed. Uh, or goes downstairs. He used to run down to Barbara all the time. Uh, Any time I made that mistake. So I learned to shut the door and then go get her before we say the word. Uh, I believe John had a, a parrot. Was it a parrot, John? Yes. That's quite a vocabulary. So uh, we just don't know. There's some things we don't know. But if we are to assume that the serpent could not really speak, then maybe it was capable of making sounds that are capable of speech, and the devil took advantage of that. Uh, regardless, this is in fact Satan speaking to Eve through this serpent. And so this introduces us to the subject and, and the existence of angels. For the very first time, we are being introduced to angels. Now, if we go to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 28, Isaiah 14, and 1 Timothy 3, we, we can piece together some things about uh, Satan. Uh, his name is Lucifer. In Ezekiel 28, 14, he is a, a type of an angel called a cherubim. And we notice here at the end of chapter 3 that uh, cherubim angels have, been, uh, have removed Adam and Eve from the garden and, and are guarding the tree of life. Um, so they, they couldn't enter back in. Um, Ezekiel 28.12 tells us that uh, Lucifer was the highest of all of the angels. We can read about his sin in, in Isaiah chapter 14. And then in 1 Timothy 3, Paul tells us that at the core of what he did, his sin was pride. I also know that the angels are created. This verse here is from Psalms 148. It's the first five verses. And it tells us that angels, like all other things, are created beings. And so God is eternal. So He has no beginning and no end. He is not bound by time. But angels are. Because angels have a point of creation, a, a point of origin. They began existing at a certain point. And the reason they exist is because God commanded it to be so. The verse here says, uh, Hallelujah, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, 
Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for he commanded and they were created. Now, when we look at a verse like that, uh, it's lumping everything that God has made together. Everything that God has made that we know about. Even maybe a better way of saying this. Uh, the things that we do know about angels and the universe, the sun and the moon and the stars and, and us, and animals, all the things that we are aware of were created by God. Uh, and it gives us the impression just from this passage that it was all done at the same time. But there are other places in the Bible that give us uh, more information. Uh, we know that the earth from uh, Genesis chapter 1 was created on the very first day. The earth. And we're told that the surface of the earth was covered with water. Well... Job chapter 38 tells us that the angels were observing this happening. They were witnesses to the creation, which lets us know that they were created before day one. Um, if you would like to, you could keep your fingers in Genesis there and flip over to Job, uh, the book of Job chapter 38. And it's right before the book of Psalm. And you'll remember that Job was a, was a godly man and uh, just really was doing a pretty good job as a, as a man who, who uh, respected God and tried to follow uh, the ordinances of God. And, uh, and the devil approached the throne and said, everybody's turned their back on you. And, and God's, there's probably a lot of other people who hadn't, but God picked out Job and he said, well, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, oh yeah, well that's because you've got a hedge of protection around him. Let it down. Let me have my way and he'll, he'll curse you to your face. And so Job said, okay, but you can't take his life. And so just about everything Job had was taken from him. Uh, he had boils on the bottoms of his feet to the top of his head. Uh, his wife was giving him the blues. Uh, all of his children were killed. Um, his closest allies were trying to figure out what his sins were that was brought all this upon himself. And so uh, throughout the book of Job, he is so frustrated with, with this, his situation, and he's just dying for an opportunity to sit before God and plead his case because he is sure that when he pleads his case before God, God's going to say, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have let this happen to you. I'm wrong. You're right. And so in, in, verse, in chapter 38, God begins speaking to Job. And... Uh, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, verse 1, and he said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Those are the angels. Who enclosed the sea behind the doors when it burst from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and a thick darkness its blanket, 
When I determined its boundaries and I put its bars and doors in place, when I declared, you may come this far, but no further, your proud waves stop here. Look at verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place? And it goes on. And he really puts Job in his, in his place there, doesn't he? But in the process of Job's, God's answer to Job, we find out that the angels were present. And so uh, if the earth was created on the first day and angels were there to witness it, we have to conclude that the angels were created before the creation. So when the, when the serpent entered the garden, the rebellion had already occurred. And if we think about uh, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth and other statements in the Bible about before the foundation of the, of the world, we have to recognize that God factored in the positive and negative presences of demons and the good angels. He had to factor in sin and its destruction all before the foundation of the world. And so we are introduced to angels and the, the, the bare minimum information in the Bible about them. Just not a lot of information. We are created a little bit lower than them. And uh, we see here that Eve was no match for them and we are no match for them. You know, if, uh, if you think about angels, uh, they have been in existence throughout all of man's history. And they are smart. Bible tells us that they study the Bible and that they watch us closely and they're watching this whole thing unfold. Um, the good ones and the bad ones, the ones who followed Lucifer in the rebellion, all of them are very active observers of what is happening here. And so, uh, you know, all of us were teenagers at one point and, you know, when a little girl hits fifth grade, sixth grade, you know, she's, her body's changing, and she wants to be liked. She wants to have friends. She wants to, to belong, and she wants to be special. And that's true of every single girl that's ever been born, and, and guys. Well, angels have watched this forever. They've been watching this from day one. They know what turns the dials and they are very good at predicting human behavior. Because they are created, they're not God. They're created beings, so they have limited knowledge. But experience, time, wisdom. So we are no match for them. And this is why the Bible talks about his children coming underneath his wings like a, like a chicken and her hen. So we come underneath God's wings and we rely on him for protection. So the things that God tells us to do, the things he tells us not to do, are for our own good. And so we can see here in the book of Genesis that God did put this tree in the middle of the garden. He said, don't touch that one. You can have everything else, just don't touch that one. He gave them a choice. But... He was telling them something for their own good. So it becomes a matter of trust. So when the serpent approached Eve, he waited till she was alone, and he presented this, this question. And it comes down to what you and I and everyone else has to do is whether or not we are going to trust God. Now, we also notice uh, something strange that happens after this, uh, after they've sinned, is that 
God is walking in the garden. And so God is in a garden walking, and he's talking to Adam and Eve. How are we to understand that? What is it that we know about God so far? It's Genesis chapter 3. We know that God created the heavens and the, and the earth. We know that. In, the, in Genesis 1 verse 2, it tells us that the Spirit of God is moving over the surface of the earth, the surface of the waters that are encompassing the earth. So we've got, we've got God that's a creator, and then there's a Spirit of God, and now we've got Him walking around the garden. Well, if we go to verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word for God is Elohim. And it's in Hebrew, of course, and that Hebrew word is plural. And then we'll think about some other places in, in chapter 1 where it says, let us make man in our image. So there's that plural language. And so Christians jump all over that and assume that this is the revelation of the Trinity. And uh, just, to, just to say one thing about that is this, um, the thing that's different about Hebrew and I am not a Hebrew expert, okay, but I have read about this, and so I'm really telling you what other people have told me. So I'm not an expert, but obviously. But um, uh, in English, you can have a, you can have a, the, like the word created, and it's a verb. Um, and it can be singular or plural. I created, he created, they created, we created. It doesn't really matter in English, but in Hebrew it does. In Hebrew, there's a singular form for that, and a, and a plural form. Uh, and so when you have plural, Elohim, that means gods. So are we to understand in the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth? Obviously not. The way you know that is because the verb is singular. In the beginning, God created singular. That tells us that we're talking about one God, the one true God. And so. Uh, what the Bible is telling us right from the very beginning is that there is one God and he is powerful. The, uh, the root of this word for Elohim. So it's, it's got the idea that this is the most powerful, the one and only true powerful God. And so you and me, we think about what God has revealed to us throughout the Bible about, his, about himself and that there's a, a triune Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so our eyes automatically go back to Genesis 1 and we look at that language and we're thinking, well, he's kind of telling us, but he's not. So it's uh, he's, the Trinity, uh, in other words, what you have to do is uh, look at the, and I'm, I'm only bringing this up because uh, a lot of times we will try to talk about Genesis chapter 1 and the Trinity. And if you're talking to people who, um, for example, are Jewish and know Hebrew, um, or someone who knows linguistics and languages, um, you're going to kind of look silly to them. Because uh, even though Elohim is plural, the verb makes it singular, which is something different in the English language. So we, don't, we kind of miss that. Um, so the, uh, the, the form of the word, plural and singular, doesn't determine uh, whether it's singular or plural. The sense does. And so when we look at in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it's obviously talking about one God, the God, the God who did everything. That's obviously what it's trying to say. So uh, even though this is not a proof text for the Trinity, the Trinity is there. 
at the same time because we have the Creator, the Father Creator. We have the Spirit of God. And then here in chapter 3, we have Jesus walking around in the garden. And elsewhere in Scripture, we know that Jesus was very much a part of the creation. Uh, there's many places that we can turn to for that, but here I've got Colossians, and this is the first part of Colossians, verse 16. And it says, For everything was created by Him. It's talking about Jesus. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, which would involve angels, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, or, they, or, or authorities. So, in progressive revelation in Scripture, we find out that there, that there is only one true God, there's only one, but He has revealed Himself to us in three different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, in the earliest of introductions here in the Bible, we are being told that God is one, but yet in hindsight, our eyes can't help but go back to that plural language in chapter 1. Because God has presented Himself to us uh, as the Father who is on His throne in heaven and He is operating from heaven. But He's also revealed Himself in His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, the Holy Spirit you know, operates from heaven, but He operates here on earth too, but usually not physically. When we think of the Holy Spirit, it's not a, it's not a physical presence. Um, uh, the closest I can think of was uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, when, when Jesus was baptized. And the heavens were opened, and the, and the Father spoke from the heaven. Uh, this is my, my son, who I'm just tickled to death with. I, this is my son. And then it tells us that, that the Holy Spirit, it, says the, it actually says the Spirit of God, just like here in verse 2. It says the Spirit of God descended as a dove. So uh, that's the closest I've ever, I can think of of the Holy Spirit manifesting Himself other than maybe the flaming tongues in, in Acts, Acts chapter 2. But as a rule, uh, the Holy Spirit is very involved in creation. He's very present here, obviously, but it's, more, it's not really physically. But when God decides to enter the creation Himself, He does this through His Son, Jesus. And so this is who we are talking to in the Garden of Eden. This is when God decides that He wants to talk to us personally. And so it's one true God who has revealed Himself in three persons. Now, the, the, the biggest uh, event here that we see, is, so we have talked a little bit about the, uh, the nature of God, His character, and the person of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've been introduced to these angels. But the biggest issue of chapter 3 obviously is the fall and this is something that Gene was talking about during Sunday school uh, there in verse in verse 1 it tells us that, this, that the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals and that word cunning in Hebrew just means the word shrewd and so uh, it's interesting because in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 4 the same word is used as a, as a virtue that the wise will try to, to cultivate in your life and so uh, we we want to develop this uh, this virtue uh, if we are wise but it can also be misused and this is an, an example of how something that is not in, inherently wrong uh, that just can be used for good is used for bad so as I said he approached Eve while she was alone if he'd approached them both together there might have been a consensus where they would have been able to discuss with each other. 
But he approached her while she was alone, and he, he raised a question. He introduced a question, something that had not occurred to her before. Uh, and it was an attack on God's character. He said, did he really say you couldn't eat that? Really? How, how do you feel about that, Eve? What God is telling you is a lie because he just doesn't want you to be like him. It's interesting in chapters 1 through 3 that every time it talks about God, it's the Lord God throughout. Uh, beginning in chapter 2, uh, actually the creation account in chapter 1 really kind of ends at chapter 2, verse 3. That's probably the best place for them to have broken chapters 1 and 2. But uh, beginning in verse 4, it moves, it's, it's Lord God every time. Verse 4, verse 5, Lord God. Verse 7, Lord God. Verse 8, Lord God. Verse 9, Lord God. All the way through chapter 3, Lord God. All the way through the remainder of the chapter. Verses, verse 21, Lord God of chapter 3. Verse 22 of chapter 3, Lord God. Verse 23, Lord God. But in the conversation between the devil and Eve, it's just God. Did God really say? You know, Lord implies sovereignty and submission and authority. And that was Satan's problem. He did not want to submit to God. He did not want him to be his authority. And so he has removed that title. Lord God is not Jesus' first and last name. That's a title. And uh, we notice that this temptation is, uh, they call it the archetype of temptations. It's the, it's the master plan. It's sometimes, uh, you know, the devil or, or our sin nature will tempt us by using all three of these arrows. Or sometimes, if you're like me, just, you just need one of them. You don't need all three. But uh, uh, 1 John 2.16 is a very popular verse. 1 John 2.16 is a popular verse that... Uh, kind of uh, summarizes the temptations that the devil tried on Jesus. It summarizes the temptations that were tried here on Eve. She saw that it was good for food, that it was delightful to her eyes, and it was capable of giving her wisdom. And so this is the, the, the method of temptation that the devil uses. And unfortunately, it's not always the devil that causes us to sin, it's, or demons, it's just our, our nasty sin nature. And we... It's our sin nature that wants to blame it on demons. But it really, it's, it's just us most of the time. But here's 1 John 2.16. It says, For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And then we look at what the devil said to her. He said, that, that's not true. What he's telling you is, is a lie. He says, you will not die. There in verse 4, you're not going to die. And this is the lie that everyone embraces. It is the sin nature's dream. You will not lie. This is, you will not die. This is, the, this is our dream. This is why people invest their entire lives in everything but recognizing that they're going to die. Uh, they're at the gym. They're 
pursuing wealth. They're wrapped up in all of their forms of recreation and hobbies. Some people are all about their job. Um, some, some, uh, you know, uh, children can be everything, and you just completely invest in them. That's all you care about is your children or your house. Um, some people spend their entire life working on their retirement, you know. Uh, so, so you, if you live, if you're a man, you're not going to live as long as a woman typically. So, um, I'm at the uh, the short end of this, you know. Sun setting for me, and so uh, I can spend my entire life worrying about what I'm going to do in the last three or four years before my health leaves me. You know, this is what happens. People spend their entire lives denying the fact that they're going to die. It's a lie that uh, even infects Christians. It can infect their theological misunderstandings. Some believers will, uh, the theologies get all twisted up just because of this. You'll see them think that, uh, that they are not healed because they did not have enough faith. They weren't delivered from something because they didn't have enough faith. They're not prospering because they didn't have enough faith. As if their faith can override the law of sin and death. Now God does heal people and sometimes it's miraculously. And if we're smart, we will ask him to heal us. We should. We all have to recognize at the same time that that the the Bible teaches that the the believer, uh, God will, uh, that you will bring problems, trials and tribulations into your own life by your own doing. Your stupidity, your foolishness, your rebellion, your disobedience, you will bring all kinds of trouble into your own life. Trials and tribulations. The Bible says that if you're living for God in the right way, you still may have trials and tribulations brought upon you because of persecution because of your faith in Jesus. The Bible also says that there will be trials and tribulations brought into your life for your own good, for your growth. And so the Christian life is not, is not there's no promises, it's the exact opposite, that it's just going to be this beautiful, smooth sailing thing. It's not like that at all. Life is a battle, it's a fight. It doesn't ever quit. You will always have a fight, always have a battle. And it's a misunderstanding to think that you're going through something because of you don't have enough faith. The Bible is very clear that we are going to die. Our bodies are temporary and they're wearing out. They're a tent. They're wearing out. They're not going to last. The law of sin and death. You know, uh, I was thinking about this. Uh, I was thinking about how the devil... Um, and like I've said before, you know, the devil probably wouldn't waste his time on, on me or you. Probably none of us are of that importance. But you see Satan showing up for the big things. Jesus in the garden, Eve and Adam in the garden, the cross. Chapter 38 of Ezekiel, we see him very much involved in a king. He moves nations. 
He's a bad guy. And all the people that have followed him are bad. They're really bad. They don't have our best interests. They are not our friends. You know, um, it's kind of hard to believe, but the Bengals were in the Super Bowl uh, last year, and uh, this is really exciting. I think we were all very excited about that. And just imagine if you had to work during that game and you didn't get to watch it, but you were an avid Bengals fan. And so you, you taped it, and you told all your friends, don't tell me anything. You didn't listen to the radio, didn't watch TV, you just tuned it all out. But when you got home, you'd been working all night, so you go home and you go to bed. When you get up, you're going to have the Bengals games. You're going to watch it, so you get your popcorn or whatever you want, and you're sitting there, and you've got the TV started, the game's on. And somebody knows that you have so much affection and interest and excitement and that you're emotionally involved and you're proud of this opportunity. And then they walk in and say, yeah, it's a pretty good game, but the Bengals lose. You know? So what the devil was doing here doesn't really have anything to do with us. It was what he was trying to do to God. We're just collateral damage. I feel so sorry for people who think that they're the good guys. That they can go to hell to be with their friends. and What a mistake. Adam and Eve's eyes were open, but not in a good way. They were naked, ashamed, they were afraid, convicted to a life of pain and toil, conflict, alienation from God and death. You know, and and as soon as God confronts them, you know, as soon as He calls out for them, we notice that He didn't ask for Eve, He called for Adam. And we notice that Adam was more responsible for the sin. It was a greater sin. Adam's sin was greater. And just immediately... Out of their mouths comes that, that sin nature, just immediately comes right out. You know, Adam right off the bat starts blaming God. You know, that, the woman you gave me. And he says, Really? Is it what have you done, Eve? And, she's, and, and then he, he even makes it sound like she brought the food to him. Maybe he didn't know what it was, you know. And, uh, but he says, Well, what have you done? Is that what you did? And she says, It was the serpent. So right from the very beginning, you can see that, that sin nature of passing the buck and shifting blame and refusing to take accountability. Uh, 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 genuine uh, sorrow uh, over your own actions. And then I would uh, also think that we should notice one other key uh, milestone that's occurring here, and that is the, there's, just, there's an incredible shift that happens at the fall when man when man sinned. Um, this is all we know. This is it. We we just know sin. We know sin nature. We we know everything is corrupted. This is all we know. Uh, but the Bible tells us that it wasn't originally like that. And the the shift was so dramatic, huge change. At a certain point, there was harmony with man and God. There was no shame. There was no guilt. They were openly communicating, and God would come and fellowship with them. Jesus was in the Garden of Eden with them. And uh, it was probably really wonderful. And that was just comp 
completely destroyed, over. And the, the relationship between man and the animals and the rest of creation was in harmony. You know, uh, nothing was dying. Everything had its place. Everybody was respecting each other. It was wonderful. And all of that was just completely disrupted and never to be seen again from that point forward. The curse of sin and death created a new arrangement. The arrangement with Adam and Eve before the fall is very much different from the arrangement after the fall. And he begins to talk about this curses, the things that are going to change now. Now this new arrangement, some people see this as a covenant. Some people see it as a dispensation. Um, there's a, a Greek word that's sometimes translated as dispensation, but it just means an, an, an administration, a new order, a, a divinely ordained order, a new stewardship. You know, you can call it whatever you want, whatever trips you trigger. It doesn't really matter to me, just as long as you can recognize that the situation has changed dramatically. Something is very different now. And it's going to continue as it is until Jesus returns. This is where we are. Now, in Sunday school, Gene talked about uh, God's plan and how it moves from creation, and then there's the rebellion, and then there's redemption and consummation. And uh, if I could just read uh, Romans 8, and we won't go back to Genesis 3, so let's all turn to Romans 8. We've got time. We've got a bird feeder in our backyard and in the front yard. And the little chipmunks and squirrels and bunny rabbits and all the kinds of birds are eating all that bird seed and there's a hawk. Every once in a while he sits up real high and he watches them and he swoops down there and snatches one of them and flies off with them. Or sometimes we'll walk out there and there'll be this big pile of feathers. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. I think about people who, you know, think that they can uh, earn God's favor by being good. And if, if, if we just think about what we're seeing here with this creation, this, this beautiful way the world was originally created, and then the devastation of the fall 
and this this massive condition and I haven't talked about the the, the depraved condition of a man's heart in, in sin but it, uh, hopefully you're honest enough about yourself to for me not to go into that too much I think all of us hopefully can agree that our sin our heart is very bad and uh, it's just full of sin and to think that somehow we could fix that and somehow we can undo what we've done it's uh, it's it's a helpless situation and I think that these chapters illustrate this. It shows us that, that works are, are wrong. It's pointless and almost insulting to God. Just even think that there's some way we can undo this. It's impossible. And that is why in the book of Genesis, right from the very beginning, God begins to unveil His plan. And it begins in verse 15. It's a prophecy and it's a prediction, that, uh, but it's also a promise of future restoration, that things are going to be restored, just like the book of Romans is telling us here in chapter 8. And then in verse 21, we see God clothing Adam and Eve with an animal skin. And so this is teaching us. It's not being laid out very fully at the point, but it's the idea of a substitute, the shedding of blood for the remissions of sin, covering sin, and how something else, someone else, has to take care of this for you. This is not something you can do. You are incapable. And when you're wearing that animal skin and walking out of the Garden of Eden in shame, the only thing you can be thinking about is how someone else has clothed me. You know, at, 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 at everything I've done, Somebody else is taking care of my problem. Somebody else is taking care of my sin. It's, this, it's humility. It's grace. And it's the exact opposite of someone who thinks that they're going to stand before God and be vindicated, like Job. Job had to learn the hard way. He's not going to be vindicated when he stands before God. He's going to be on his face in humility. This is, this is the truth about our sin and the glorious, wonderful gift of Jesus dying on the cross in our place. Now, uh, if everything goes as planned, next, next week we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 4. And we'll continue with the same message, the same unfolding of God's redemptive plan. It really starts to pick up speed in the next, in the next chapters. But uh, we begin to see that uh, salvation is by grace through faith. There's going to be two different offerings, and it's going to illustrate this because God only accepts one of them. So let's pray.